You don't have to go very far to find people who sound different than I do. Well, there was 45 sheep missing, like, and the lambs and everything. The sheep just count, just count out the nice bit of money, like, be done about you, nothing. Believe it or not, me and my Irish friend here are speaking the same language. But my Canadian English and this man's Irish English, as you can hear, are pretty different beasts. Languages change over distance. They also change over time. Here's a news clip from 50 years ago. This will also be the scene of the final peace ceremonies for which preparations were well underway. Compare that to now. Get after new data from across the country shows a major slump. Sales dropped 40% in February compared to... There's a different pacing, different word choices. Like us, language is constantly evolving. The ebbs and flows of words throughout the world's estimated 7,000 distinct languages is a veritable spiderweb of influences that crosses the planet over centuries and millennia. This is the last episode of Season 1 of Infernal Communication. We've covered a lot of ground. Delivering bad news, cutting through the digital noise, cursing... FaceTime versus screen time. All these things that we work through and with to be better communicators. So today, to finish with a big one, we're going to go back to the very beginning. Can we pinpoint where it all started? How did people first communicate? What do we really understand about our connection to language? And how important is it in making us who we are? You're listening to Infernal Communication, brought to you by Staffbase, and I'm your host, Kyla Sims. In 1860, a Parisian inventor named Edouard Leon Scott de Martinville played the first known recording. That ghostly sound is an unnamed woman singing Eau Claire de la Lune. If we want to know what anything sounded like before that, We're out of luck. That's as far back as audio goes. 180 years. And when it comes to language, whether it's 200, 2,000, or 20,000 years ago, we can't know for sure what different languages actually sounded like, which makes tracing the evolution of a spoken language pretty tough. But there are languages in the world that have remained uninfluenced by others. Languages that are faithful to their origins. They are hermetically sealed. They are time capsules that show us how people used to communicate. One of these languages is Pidaha. Less than 500 people speak the language, and only four people have learned it as a second language. The Pidaha thought I was a really cool kind of parrot. I could say, <laughs> I could say things back to them just exactly right, you know, because of my phonetic training, but I didn't have any idea what I was saying. Linguist Dan Everett is one of them. I am probably best known for my uh, 30 years of field research in the Amazon of Brazil among the Pitaha people and the discoveries that have come from all of that research. Dan went to live with the Pitaha people with the intention of converting them to Christianity. I went as a missionary and only one convert came out of that encounter, me. (laughs) 
That's beautiful. <laughs> I was converted to their their way of thinking, which is atheism. So who are the Pitaha people? The Pitaha are a group of about 500 or so hunter-gatherers in the Amazon jungle. If you looked at a map of South America and you took out all the country boundaries, right in the middle of the Amazon jungle would be the Pitaha. They're smack dab in the thickest uh, area along the Mycie River. They are a language isolate, which means their language is not related to any other known language. They're sort of like the Basque of Amazonia. They're not related to any other known language. Basque is not related to Spanish or French or German or any other Indo-European language, and Pinaha is not related to any of its neighbors. It has sounds that aren't found in any other language in the world. So where it came from, we're not exactly sure. Um, and there have been a lot of efforts to figure these things out, but nobody's come up with a good hypothesis. They have a very unusual language. It has no colors. It has no numbers, no number words. Psychologists came from MIT, from Columbia University, from Stanford University, from the University of Miami at different times, and they all did experiments to try to show that they had to have numbers because many people believe that numbers are innate. Humans have to have numbers, but in fact, they don't. This doesn't mean the Pitaha are not capable of learning numbers. I met a Pitaha woman who's, who only speaks Portuguese, who runs a store, and so she's making change and doing math all day long. So it has nothing to do with intelligence. It's a cultural decision. They just don't need numbers. Uh, when I describe the sound system, just saying how they accent their words violated a lot of theories. So when you're studying a language that's never been studied, you will find things that people didn't imagine because we think we've developed theories that will predict whatever we're going to find in whatever language we look to study. But in fact, that's wrong. Languages are rich and they're full of all kinds of surprises and they tell us more about what a human can be than we actually think we know. And so that's why fieldwork and preserving endangered languages is so important to me. I'm just imagining what it must have been like for you coming from the United States, a young man going into the Amazon to meet these people. Can you describe what it was, what that experience was like when you first met them and first traveled to, to see them? It was a two-hour plane ride from the nearest town on a small little Cessna single engine that landed on an airstrip in the jungle that the Pitaha had built with another missionary. And I got off the plane and I was airsick and it was hot. And I thought I was just looking for a place to throw up, but everybody was around me and talking. And I looked at the little kids speaking this language fluently. And I said, well, gosh, if they can learn it, I can learn it. <laughs> and so I just started taking notes and, and asking things in English. And I pick up a stick and say, what's this? And they say, eh. So I would write down eh. And I said, this probably means stick because I had training in the international phonetic alphabet. That's pretty important training. And then I, I dropped it and I said, what's that? And they said, and I thought, well, that must mean the stick fell to the ground. And, and then so you just start working from there. And the Pitaha thought I was a really cool kind of parrot. <laughs> I could say things back to them just exactly right, you know, because of my phonetic training. But I didn't have any idea what I was saying. So they thought this was really funny. 
Um, they taught me bad words at times, you know, just, <laughs> just to hear me say them. Yeah. That's kind of like the crux of learning any new language. It's like, okay, tell me the curse words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It turns out their sense of humor is very much like mine. So we got along really well. So immediately we struck up a rapport and we became very good friends, which has lasted, you know, half my life. By studying the Pitaha, you found that the language didn't follow universal rules that had been established by other linguists. For example, it doesn't have numbers, colors, or use recursion, which is inserting phrases inside others like Daniel Everett flew to London and talked about the story of his life. Finding these differences, what does this say about the foundations of the way that we communicate with each other? What does this say about what we think we know about human communication? To me, the simple lesson is that we're really smart. We're just really smart, and we use inference, and we make symbols through our culture, and we agree on what those symbols mean, and we can make the grammar more complicated or less complicated, and it has different functions. A more complicated grammar is useful for some cultures because it communicates more information per sentence, and it eliminates a lot of ambiguity. It removes the need for a lot of inference, where a simpler grammar relies more on inference. Although I should say that the Pinaha, although their grammar is simple compared to English grammar, and English grammar is simple compared to uh, Latin, for example, the Pinaha verb structure is far more complex. So in English, we only have five verb forms. You take an example, sing, singing, sings, sang, sung. So that's English's five forms. Hit isn't even that. It's hit, hits, hit, hit, hit. That's all we have for that verb. <laughs> Spanish has maybe 40 or 50 different verb forms. Uh, but Pitaha has as much as 65,000 possible verb forms. Whoa! So their verb structure is incredibly complicated. And one reason they don't need such complicated syntax is because the verb, without recursion, expresses a lot of what they need. But still, they rely tremendously on inference because... I know what all the parts of the Pitaha verb means after all my years there. Mm -hmm. But even now, when I hear a verb, I sometimes have to write it down and figure it out and then infer what all that together means because I'm still not the native speaker I would like to be. That's very interesting. I have another a more like philosophical question for you. Do you think that understanding the origins of language can benefit us <laughs> in a complex world of communication in our modern day communication? Yes, I do. Because if you, if you learn through the study of our evolution that it was with symbols that we got kicked off uh, into this linguistic world that we now inhabit, then we realize the power of symbols and how symbols can go across languages and, and how it is that language is what our species is about. We're the talking species. Mm -hmm. There's no other species besides us that talks for a living or writes for a living that uses symbols. So you look at Homo erectus. What happened to them when they got language? What were they able to do? What did this do? The formation of society, the formation of culture, communication through language is what gives us peace. It what gives us war. It's what makes us feel united. It's what divides us. It's the most powerful force that humans can marshal. And one hopes that it can be used to our benefit to develop our understanding and not to push ourselves farther apart with misunderstanding. 
I love that. We take it for granted how powerful it is. And we take it for how complicated it is. You know, in some of my classes, mm-hmm. I I give students examples of how complicated their language is, and they didn't even know that. <laughs> you know, they know how to do it. They don't make errors. And yet, how hard is it to teach this to somebody? It's really hard. Mm-hmm. And yet we learn it and we're natural at it. And it's it's what makes us who we are. So it's really exciting. I've never tired of it. I've been studying language for over 40 years now. And if I have another 40 years, I probably don't. I will be studying language the whole time. Okay. So all season, we've been digging into how to communicate better in different situations. Dan Everett is really getting to the heart of why. It's the foundation of society and culture. It's what unites us. It's what divides us. It is our most powerful tool. We have a need to study and understand our world. So we create frameworks and rules. But our rigid understanding of how language is supposed to work is only a guideline. People like the Pitaha are going to do it their own way with beautiful results. Coming up, what makes us who we are as a species? Let's see what answers we can find looking at 65,000-year-old art. You're listening to Infernal Communication, a podcast brought to you by Staffbase, where we dive into the deeper conversations happening behind some of the biggest comms problems and puzzles that impact organizations and beyond. If you're enjoying the show so far, make sure you follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show and you want me to keep my job, please leave us a review and let us know what you think. You can also check out the show on our website by going to infernocommunication.com. We're talking about the history of communications. And in order to do that, we're going to have to go back. Real far back. Even further. Keep going. So far back that you should picture yourself at the end of the deepest, darkest cave that you can imagine. We're back here for a reason. Because this is the best place to find Genevieve von Petzinger. I'm literally like half cave troll. (laughs) Genevieve is a paleoanthropologist. She studies the oldest art in the world. She's also the author of The First Signs, Unlocking the Mysteries of the World's Oldest Symbols. Depending on how you like to spend your day, she has one of the coolest jobs in the world. I mean, other than mine, of course. I guess you can't be claustrophobic and like my job. I either am working in caves and investigating really old art that our ancestors made, or I'm climbing mountains, or sometimes I'm hiking across deserts. I study ancient art from the Ice Age, but I I don't just look at the art because it's pretty. I'm really interested in trying to understand when did we become us? What does this art tell us about the modern mind, about the origins of writing, of speaking, communication? It's a very small field, and we're all super busy doing really interesting stuff. And, 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 you know, there's this whole big wide world that needs that needs to be documented, right? 
Oh, that's that's so wonderful. Um, so so I want to talk a little bit about these caves. Can you walk us through what it's like exploring these kinds of caves? Like, what do they yeah. look like? What do they sound like? What does it feel like when you go inside? What sort of things do you find? Oh man, I'll tell you about Ardalas. Ardalas is a phenomenal cave in southern Spain. Ardalas is one of three caves. The art in there is at least sixty five thousand years old. I mean, at that point, there wasn't even modern humans in Europe, right? So this is like the best evidence we have so far that Neanderthals made art, which is incredibly exciting in its own right. Um, Obviously, again, I should disclose I am Team Neanderthal, (laughs) which means (laughs) I do think they made art because, I mean, there's so much evidence of Neanderthals being like us. So Ardalis in particular, it's in the side of a mountain fairly near the ocean in southern Spain. When you enter caves, it's almost like you've entered a different world. As you walk in, the sound of the outside world just kind of gone. And you're in the space where it's like almost negative sound, like it's so quiet. And yet you can hear like the drip of individual drops falling. The sounds of our feet are really loud, but it's this really special space. It definitely feels like you've entered another realm. It is like walking into Wonderland. Everything has these huge calcite formations coming down. And so they, they look like chandeliers, like frozen chandeliers coming off the ceiling or like frozen rivers. Like everything is just incredible. It's either gray or white. And just there's something about that cave where there is so much glittery quartz, like tiny bits of quartz and everything. That the whole main chamber, when you walk down and you get down to the level of the cave, the whole chamber glitters. It's one of the craziest things I've ever seen. What makes Ardalis really special is that there's red marks on some of these huge formations, like they were marking the formations. There's handprints. So, you know, sometimes you get these incredibly elaborate pieces of art. Other times you get like tiny little doodle carvings. Like it's, it's so fascinating to see as well the sheer variety of, of things they were doing in there. Like, I think that's the big thing that sometimes people get a little bit confused about. I think they use art the way we use art. Like in the sense that I, I think it was just, it was a part of their lives and and you've got everything in there from the Louvre to like some naughty graffiti in the bathroom. Like I think the whole, the whole run of it's there. <laughs> to me, that's what makes the art so powerful is that everybody has to survive, right? Like we all need stone tools. Mm-hmm. Why are they making art? You don't need art, right? Mm. And so it's like a way to peek inside their minds to get some insight into like, how are they seeing the world? What was important to them? What are they drawing? Are they trying to leave messages for each other? Or, or even like really special stuff. This fall, I was in a cave in uh, northern Spain in Aragon, and there was an infant handprint in there. Mm. Yes, I'd never seen one that small before. And so somebody had dipped their, their baby's hand into the paint and then put it up on the wall, like up high. Near, and there was like this, another little hand nearby that was probably a three to four year old. And then there was some grown up hands. So it was like a whole family. Like that was like just this really beautiful moment again. And then I'm literally standing exactly where they stood. It's really one of the privileges of what I get to do. I love that image of like the baby's hand because it reminds me of like when little kids go to preschool and kindergarten and we get them to do their little handprints and stuff like that. It's like, they're just like us. <laughs> you know, I think that's kind of what I'm trying to understand, right? Is about 300,000 years ago, the first Homo sapiens appear on earth. And, and now again, it's not like one day it was Homo erectus and then some mom gave birth to a Homo sapien baby, right? It's like a gradual change. But by about 300,000 years ago, there are people walking the planet who 
they look like us. They have the same brains as us. The question that was, well, could they think like us? It's so interesting to try and figure out where and when did they start tapping into these capacities. And then I think the other big thing for me with the art too is I'm really interested in like the origins of like storytelling. When did we start telling stories? And I think that we're seeing some of those oldest stories in the world on those cave walls, which blows my mind to think, you know, maybe this is an ancestor. Maybe this is a goddess. Maybe this is a story that's like really important for this particular tribal group. So seeing those those intangible things that are so often hard to capture, it's like we're peeking through a keyhole and then we're trying to rebuild the entire world from that. But we just get these little glimpses of like, oh, wow, think of, look at the way they thought about the world. Look at the way they behaved. They're so like us and yet so many things we don't know. Your research and what you've discovered, how important has communication been for humans and our evolution? I would say communication is one of the foundational discoveries of humanity. And I say that because we're used to having graphic stuff all around us in the world today. Even emojis are like, they're literally direct descendants of this. And it's we're still doing the same thing, which is an emoji is a really simple little character that actually embeds a huge amount of information. Right? Like, we're actually imparting a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, I love using, like, the eye roll emoji. It's one of my favorites, right? Like, you're saying so much with not a word, right? Our ability to communicate, like, binary code, writing in books, I mean, putting people on the moon, like, all of this requires graphic communication. All of this goes back to that idea of origins again, right? And the big thing, the huge mental leap that took place with modern humans, what we're seeing is that or maybe maybe even slightly farther back. And I think that's the big question right now is everything's getting older as we're realizing that we have vastly underestimated the age of many things. But somewhere back in time, somebody made the big cognitive shift of like, we don't just have to talk face-to-face and then that thought is gone. We can write something down. And when you write something down, it gives it a completely different life. And this is super key. It allowed us to store information externally, outside of the body for the very first time in a permanent fashion. So my colleagues who work in Africa have been really digging into this because they're looking at these, again, these really early, quote unquote, simple pieces, but there are these repetitive marks. There's interesting stuff going on there. And, And as they've suggested that really, these are the original artificial memory systems Mm. because they're a way to save information, store information, share information, retrieve information. What do literally almost everybody on the planet have today? We have smartphones, we have computers. What are they? They're artificial memory systems. They're communication devices. Whether it's somebody passing off, you know, a bone with some important marks on it, Or, you know, it's somebody making, you know, texting their friend. We are communicating without needing to be in the same place. And that is so powerful because it opens up our networks again to these huge possibilities of information exchange. It allows us to start controlling the world in a different way, right? Because once you can start tracking things like lunar cycles and seasons and like, when did the salmon come back up the river? You are starting to take control of your world in a very different way. You're not just a leaf bobbing along on the surface. Now you have a paddle. You're starting to actually control your direction. You're starting to be able to conceive of the world in a different way. And so communication is absolutely at the heart of what makes us human. And it sounds like you're saying communication in and of itself was a kind of tool that was essential for our evolution. You know, we can remember the past. We can imagine the future. It's called mental time travel. 
Most creatures on planet Earth cannot do that. And so part of that, though, is, again, having those communication tools, the ability for to pass on incredibly complicated information. So it's thinking verbally, some of the tools that our ancestors made were really complicated and could not have been explained using grunts. Mm. Like, you have to be able to talk to explain how to make this fancy tool. Right. Right? And so the complexity of information we are able to pass on is directly related to our ability to communicate. It's almost like there's these important punctuation marks in our history, which are like, you know, humanity figures this out and then this happens. And communication's huge. And then it played a really important role when it came to surviving difficult conditions like ice ages or when it came to, hey, we need to invent this new thing. I mean, all the way up to the present, like, hey, let's put something on the moon. How do we do this? (laughs) The ability to save information, share it, retrieve it, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's it's literally central to what we do every day without even thinking about it now. Yeah, it's like the the water we swim in, right? We just don't even, sometimes don't even recognize it. That's a beautiful, I like that. It is exactly, it's like the water <laughs> we swim in. We have no idea it's there anymore. But, and yet, and yet somewhere you go far enough back in time, it didn't exist. And and that is to me That's the weird quest, to think about. <laughs> right? Is to try and figure out where and when, who did it start with and, and why? How does learning more about the past of communication benefit the modern world in your in your perspective? So I think there's a couple ways. Uh, honestly, we're starting to realize that the Western way of seeing and being in the world, there's things about it which are incredible. I love technology. I use it all the time. I love the ability to speak and work with colleagues on the other side of the planet. So I'm not anti-Western stuff. At the same time, we have not managed everything with our planet necessarily that well, right? And so in that sense, you know, <laughs> it's a very it's a polite, way, it's a polite way to put it. Yeah. Um, it's a very, very diplomatic of you. <laughs> the thing is, though, is that we've, we've kind of always, in recent years, we've really privileged the Western way of looking at the world, right? Like, we're like, this is the way to do it. And what we have not paid attention to is these huge, deep bodies of knowledge that exist in different Indigenous cultures around the world. Yeah. And so part of this is is recognizing that, yes, I study really old stuff, but I am also part of a living story. And so the work that I am doing is very much transitioning into this more global positioning in a way where it's like, I am wanting to work with these partners and saying, hey, how can we support you as you take control of your own cultural heritage again. How do we help you do this? There are so many things that could be just, you know, that those who forget history are doomed to repeat it, right? And it's like these stories, these cultures, all of this information that is embedded in communication, I mean, this is the soul of humanity. And so, I I mean, I think it just behooves all of us to do our absolute best to make sure that as little as possible is lost because it benefits all of us. I love that. Well, Genevieve, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Communication is a foundational part of our humanity. What a way to better understand our history and what motivates us than continual attempts to be understood and to understand each other. A handprint on the wall of a cave, a smoke signal, Morse code, a letter, an email, this podcast, all attempts at putting something out into the universe in hopes of sharing information. 
it's a 65,000-year-old journey, always gaining in technological sophistication. But at the core of it, we're just trying to communicate. Today, our guests were Genevieve von Petzinger, a paleoanthropologist and author, and Dan Everett, linguist, author, and Pitaha scholar. I'm Kyla Sims, and this is Infernal Communication, brought to you by Staffbase, with production support from JAR Audio. As this is the final episode of season one, I'd like to thank all of our guests who have appeared on the show and shared something of themselves with us. I'd also like to thank our listeners. I really hope that you've learned as much as I have and had as much fun. And last, but definitely not least, I want to thank the amazing crew that made this podcast possible through all of their hard work and listening to me do a thousand takes each episode. So thank you so much to our audio editor and sound designer, Sam Seguin, producers Sean Holden, Tori Weldon, Jenny Cunningham, and Chris Wagner, project lead Maria St. Aubin, and executive producer Chris O'Keefe. As always, don't forget to hit follow on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows, so you'll be the first to know when season two drops. And if you like season one, please leave us a review. As we get ready for season two, let me know what you'd like to learn about, or just reach out and say hi. You can find me on LinkedIn, or you can email me directly at kyla.sims at staffbase.com. I appreciate all of your feedback. Until next time, thanks for listening.